listeners, and welcome to Classically Trained, a podcast where we talk about modern media that depicts the ancient Mediterranean world, its peoples, and its stories. I am Julia, your resident Greek literature person and linguist-ish. And I'm Allison, your resident Roman archaeologist and late antique scholar. And this week, we are talking about A Thousand Ships, the novel by Natalie Haynes. We're excited about this, I think. Yes, we are. I did not expect the, to like this as much as I did, which, yeah, I guess, spoiler alert, did we like it? Yeah. Yes, we did. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's fair for us to actually start with that. And I was also very much not expecting to like this, particularly colored by the impression that I had coming off of Pat Barker's The Silence of the Girls, which I read about a year and a half ago, and which is a sort of similar thing, and which I did not like. Yeah, I, so it wasn't that I was expecting to dislike this. It's more just that I don't really like reading books that are super depressing. And I was expecting this to be super depressing. And it, it is in some ways, but yeah, we can get into why that may not be so much the case for this book. However, first we should probably tell our audience what this book is about. <laughs> yeah, so I'll give a quick summary and then we can really get into it. I don't think we have a lot of preamble this week. No. <laughs> no. So A Thousand Ships by Natalie Haynes, published in 2019, is a novel told from the multiple perspectives of the many women, both mortal and immortal, involved in the events of the Trojan War and its aftermath. The novel is approximately but not 100% chronological and follows the events as they occur to these women from the actual fall of the city of Troy and even some things from a little bit before through to the fairly late aftermath um, all the way at the death of Neoptolemus, the son of Achilles, some 10 years after the end of the war. It portrays the perspectives and lives of characters who are as major as the goddesses Athena, Aphrodite, and Hera, and as minor as Theano, the wife of a man who took part in betraying the Trojans to the Greeks, and gives credence to all of those perspectives within the framing mechanism of the muse Calliope retelling the story to a demanding bard who has asked her once again to sing the tale of the Trojan War, and this time she is telling the version that she wants to tell. And that version is not about men. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's hard to summarize in any more specific detail than that without just recounting the individual chapters. The chapters vary a lot in length, and each of them focuses on one perspective. There are only a few that are recurring perspectives, and they're very varied. They they vary really widely in their topic and who the subject is. Um, and also the sort of framing device. Some of them are told in third person, but the, the most sort of like notable one that is distinct aside from Calliope's which narration. Which is first person. Yeah. yeah, which is first person, is also Penelope's chapters, which are all written as letters to her husband. Yes, so we have Calliope's first person chapters, we have the recurring third person chapters that do the whole story of the Trojan women kind of as a collective on the beach, which are informed by the Trojan women by Euripides. We can talk about that a little bit more. And then we have Penelope's epistolary chapters. Those are the only recurring point of view, points of view. Yeah. 
So I'm just going to give a little bit of background about Natalie Haynes, because I think her background is actually kind of interesting. So she has a degree in classics from Cambridge. And her career has been as both a writer and as a radio broadcaster. She has written both fiction and nonfiction. This is her third fiction novel. And also, kind of oddly, which you might not get from this book, because this is definitely not a comedic book, she's also done a lot of stand-up comedy. You know, I'll say this about that. My experience of kind of tragic work and really sincere, serious work in, like, modern media, a lot of it is done by people, like, the best tragedy is written by people who really understand comedy. Mm. It's not necessarily a prerequisite. Like, as somebody who writes a lot of kind of tragic shit and, like, serious stuff in my own creative writing endeavors and who cannot for the fucking life of me write comedy or humor. Like, I, I think that I do fairly well at handling serious topics, but I really do think that an understanding of the sort of light in the dark makes, tends to make the darkness starker, you know? Yes, yes, it does. I would fully agree with that. And it's not like there's no humor in this book. There's touches of humor and touches of humor that I think are done very like they're very like pointed and and used very specifically yeah and I mean this is like in this aspect it's very obvious that this book is written by a Brit because there is quite a lot of kind of wry sarcastic Mm. like moments of dark irony that come to the fore with this stuff that's like okay well this is really fucked up and I can't do anything but chuckle a little bit. Yeah. At times, there's not a lot of it. There's definitely also some moments that really hit. I'll pick out a few of those later, but like... Yeah. It's also worth noting that this is somebody who knows the sources really, really well. Yeah. Um, she goes in in the afterward into all of the different inspirations um, and like different sources that she drew upon. I'm not going to list them all here, but we'll mention a few of them as we go through talking about this. Um, but also even just reading the book, there's these very like specific moments that she brings in that makes it evident that she is very specifically familiar with the sources and is using them in a very specific and, like, meaningful way. Yeah, her use of the sources is, like, it really shows that she knows this stuff. There are a few specific phrases that jumped out to me as I was reading in a few of the chapters that I was like, oh, she's, like, paraphrasing, like, the Iliad or Euripides or whatever. The one that jumped out to me the most, because this was a sentence that I talked about in my dissertation, towards the end of chapter 10, Briseis and Chryseis, uh, which was one of the longer chapters in the book and really fucked, I must say. Oh yeah, it was a great chapter, and I honestly had just forgotten about it, because there are so many good chapters in this book, even though I only read that chapter, like, two days ago or a day ago or something. Yeah, I read it earlier this week, but it really lingered with me, and... On page 103, she writes, Nor did she weep when Achilles, raging like a mountain lion deprived of its young, returned to battle to avenge his dead friend, etc. And that simile, raging like a mountain lion deprived of its young, is taken directly from the Iliad. From book, I want to say 19, Achilles does get compared to a lion that has turned aggressive against human hunters in order to defend or in response to the loss of its cubs. 
it gets drawn on in scholarship about like parental metaphors in mm. the Iliad, of which there are quite a few, including in relation to Achilles and Patroclus's demonstrations of care, which are quite it's quite interesting and it's just like it's a really poignant metaphor in the Iliad and it was really like it hit me as somebody who's very familiar with that text to see it here and used so deliberately yeah I feel like when I was reading this even though I haven't you know read a lot of the Aeneid or the Iliad I've spent a lot of time with some specific chapters because um yeah I read book two of the Aeneid in Latin and then book six of the Iliad in in Greek, and yeah, there were there were a, a number of different specific things from those chapters that like really jumped out at me. Yeah, so one of the things that really jumped out to me was some things that Andromache says specifically in this in her chapter at the very end of the book, chapter forty two. She says at one point, "For everything she had once told Hector had now come to pass." Don't keep going out to fight on your own, she had said. Don't take so many risks. Fight among the Trojans, not ahead of them. Your honor is already assured. Catch the eye of Achilles and he will cut you down. And then what will become of your wife and son? We will be enslaved with no one to care for us. Um, and she mentions this in book six. Of Hec the Iliad. Yeah. And Hector also talks about how this will probably be her fate when he dies um, and how much that pains him. And Hector does actually... In, in book six of the Iliad talk about it as when this happens. There's a certainty that this is kind of like where the war is going and they all sort of like know a little bit that they're doomed at this point. And the other part, which is a few, a few pages later on page 335, the last bit was on page 331, she mentions the loss of her family to Achilles, which is like pretty closely hues to the, the text in book six. Um, and then Thebe had fallen to Achilles, and her father Aetion, and her seven brothers were slaughtered in a single day. This tragedy, the shock of which killed her mother shortly af afterwards, had not broken her habit of loving. So yeah, in the in book six, she she basically like says almost the this exact line about how she lost her father and her seven brothers in a single day. She then also talks about the death of her mother and basically says to Hector that you're my family now I don't have any other family left um, and that's one part of book six that I that I really love I really love the exchanges between Andromache and Hector because you really get a strong sense of Andromache as a character in the Iliad in book six and in those exchanges with Hector so I was really glad that she brought those in here yeah Andromache is like she's an interesting character because a lot of the Trojan women have kind of more personality in the Greek corpus in general because of Euripides and the sort of cycle of Trojan women plays that he did. So I mentioned earlier, one of them is the Trojan women, which tells the story of kind of the Trojan women on the beach and their last sort of words to each other and, and their bemoaning of their circumstances before they are separated and taken away by the Greek kings. And then there is the Hecuba, which follows the Trojan women pretty closely and is the events of Hecuba being brought to um, the kingdom of uh, Poly Polymestor, who is the the Thracian king, as an aside, wow, the Greeks really fucking hated the Thracians. <laughs> this is not the only shithead Thracian king in Greek tragedy. Anyways, but yeah, uh, who is the Thracian king to whom she and Priam had entrusted their youngest son, uh, Polydorus, and he killed him. And then Hecuba and her women 
like corner him in a tent and they pull out the in I think so in the book they use their like small knives I actually believe in the play they pull the pins out from their dresses and use them to stab his eyes out after murdering his own children in front of him yeah I feel like I have to also jump in here with some archaeological context a dress pin in antiquity is not like a little safety pin like these were things that were several inches long and were quite like the actual pointy bit at the end of the pin was pretty substantial so you could absolutely stab somebody's eyes out with a dress pin. However, that would mean their dresses would have fallen off, which I think is an interesting thing because the dress pins are used to specifically to pull two pieces of fabric together at the shoulders. To kind of hold the top part of the dress up and then it also probably would have been cinched at the waist with a belt or a girdle. Yeah. Though, since these are slave women, they might have had at best like kind of rope to hold the dress close at the waist okay. or below the breasts. But essentially, if you pull the, if you take the dress pins out of the shoulders, then like the dress just falls off. So I guess that's the implication of the of the play is that their this was a dresses fall apart. This was a titties out kind of murder. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. I I thought that was very funny. It was very funny. <laughs> I mean, Odysseus killing all the suitors was a titties out kind of murder too. He was fully naked while he did that. Um, that's pretty baller. I respect that. Yeah. Anyways, doing murders with your titties and or your dick out aside. It is, in fact, extremely badass, this whole, like, Hecuba getting her final revenge on this motherfucker. Now, of course, I believe she was claimed by Odysseus, which means that when he gets, like, fucking smote by Poseidon, she definitely drowned before she ever made it to anywhere. But, like... I don't think Hecuba cares at this point if she gets drowned. No, and I mean, she's old, and, like, she... All of her children are dead, and she just doesn't fucking care anymore. And, like... Also, as is expressed multiple times by multiple different people on different sort of registers of intensity throughout this novel, for a lot of these women, death was vastly preferable to slavery. Yes. Yes, it was. I Quick quick correction, though. Yes. Not all of Hecuba's children are dead. Almost all of them are dead. But Helenus, who is Hecuba's one of Hecuba's sons, like, betrays the Trojans and survives. And then eventually, after Neoptolemus dies, Andromache then marries Hellenus. So they kind of get a happily ever after, I guess. Yeah, that that's true. Hellenus is still surviving. Um, we have it in the Aeneid. I'm going to quote from, like, a really old translation. Actually, I don't know if it's that old. Anyway, it's very stilted, though. This translation by uh, f- from, like, the 60s by Alan Mandelbaum A rumor of incredible events awaits us here that Hellenus, the son of Priam, is a king of Grecian cities, that he has won the wife and scepter of Pyrrhus, Neoptolemus, Achilles' son, that once again Andromache is given to a husband of her own country. So, yeah, like Andromache ends up as the slave of the son of the man who killed her husband, ripped to Andromache, but... When Neoptolemus gets his shit wrecked by Orestes a little later, she then ends up marrying Hellenus, who is the single surviving son of Priam and and Hecuba, but only because he was a little bitch and betrayed the Trojans. However, if your city is doomed, is it such a bad thing to be a little bitch? Maybe not. I mean, yeah, he he also had a gift of prophecy, like like Cassandra, who mm-hmm. was, I believe, his twin sister, yeah. and like knew that everything was gonna go horribly wrong. So he 
chose the winning side. And I can respect the, like, survival instinct. The truth of the matter is, you would have to be an exceptionally good person to not do that. Yes. And this is not (laughs) a circumstance that rewards exceptionally good people. So... No, all the good people are dead. Yes. Yep. So speaking of people who did shit that was kind of questionable, but sort of understandable in the context, uh, one of the early chapters is dedicated to a character who like basically doesn't exist. Um, Her name is Theano. Do you want to like tell us about her? You did the looking up for this. I don't actually know that much about her. Yes, I will tell you about Theano. Um, And I remember Theano because when you are taking a class on an ancient language and you're reading a text, you read the text over and over and over again because you're getting examined on it. So I was like, oh, it's Theano, who is mentioned very briefly in the Iliad Book 6, but essentially she is this priestess who dedicates a beautiful robe woven by the Trojan women to dedicate to Athena. So she's the one who actually is like, here, Athena, have this nice robe. And I also remember her because her epithet is lovely-cheeked Theano. And this translation that I have here does not say lovely-cheeked Theano, which is a shame because I just love that epithet. I think it's kind of a stock epithet. Like, I think it gets Mm -hmm. used for other women, but it's a really nice one. It's very pretty. She's just interesting to me because she's such a teeny tiny character, but she does get about five pages in the novel. And I think it's very telling of like the kind of loving attention that Haynes has paid to the sources and to all of the characters in the sources that like, it gets repeated a little bit in Calliope's chapters that like what is being told and this version of the story is not the story of any one woman. It's the story of all of them, including the ones who didn't really do anything or who were only around for a little while and who were maybe only connected to men who themselves had a very bit part and not even a particularly heroic one. Mm-hmm. Theano's husband betrayed the Trojans and yes. uh, let the Greeks in. Yes. Well, in this chapter, actually, Theano was trying to convince her husband to betray the Greeks. She's like, look, we're sorry, to betray the Trojans. She's like, look, we're fucked. We might as well betray the Trojans and then we can save our daughter, Crino. But I think this example of this chapter is a really good example of how Natalie Haynes includes the material from the Iliad very briefly, and it doesn't feel shoehorned. It's like a nice call out if you have read the material, but it doesn't, it's not like, look at me, I know what's in the Iliad. Yeah, or in whatever, not actually the Iliad, as far as the actual events of this chapter. I could not actually figure out where the actual events of this chapter come from. They're not in the Iliad, because the Iliad does not cover the fall of Troy. Um, They're also not mentioned in the Aeneid. Who knows? The only thing that I could find that mentions Antinor as a traitor is weirdly Dante's Inferno, but I'm sure there must be some, some ancient source that refers to it. But anyway, if anybody knows please feel free to contact us. I'm curious. And I, I also think that Haynes does a certain amount of embroidery on very little yes. things that only pop up as like just a tiny bit here and there. Yeah. And it's like, that's fine too. I think that these kinds of novelizations actually do benefit from going away from the text from time to time. Like much as I appreciate her faithfulness and her attention to the sources, mm-hmm. that she feels at liberty to go ahead and just like make shit up 
to enhance and to to sort of fill out the places where the ancient authors were just not interested in the internal lives of women. Like, it's good. There's nothing wrong with it. And she executes it really well. Yes. So I, as far as I can tell from a bunch of, like, from Wikipedia, I think this is a good example because it's, you know, it, what it seems is that Antinor betrays the the Trojans, but I there doesn't seem to be any mention anywhere that Theano is the one who convinced him to do it. As far as I can tell, I could be wrong, but that is a really great example, right? That, like, she decides to take this perspective on Theano. Yeah, it's a good chapter. One of the other things that I wanted to bring up about her kind of attention to the source's end as a sort of effect of Natalie Haynes being a trained classicist who knows a lot about this stuff is that there are just also a lot of, like, what I will call world-building details, though, of course, this is, I mean, you know, it's historical world-building, that just get mentioned offhand, like, you know, and, like, using terminology from time to time and Mm. using just, like, little bits of information about, like, people's clothing and the things that they ate and, like, certain customs that get invoked like um we get repeated mentions of the women throwing dust onto like washing men's bodies and then throwing dust onto them to ensure their passage to the underworld like we get that a couple Mm -hmm. times and that's the kind of thing that like makes me actually feel like i am reading a novel that is about the iliad or about like the classical period like the the sort of this this part of the classical period because it doesn't impose modernity onto the story. Yes. It what it really does very nicely is it is it takes the things that are relatable about all of these texts without yeah, without imposing modernity on them. And I mean, I think, you know, that's why we still read these texts is because they have things in them that are emotionally relatable or emotionally significant in them and you know that doesn't require imposing modernity on a text in in any way shape or form um another phrase she uses a lot is guest friend so the idea of a guest friend is essentially um this this is actually a historical thing that happened quite a bit in the bronze age i'm not sure about later how much this comes up i'm sure like later greek hospitality plays on this but a guest friend is essentially these relationships that elites would develop with one another in order as as a a sense of like diplomacy. So, you know, like political elites from all around the Mediterranean developed relationships with each other as guest friends, you know, like people from Greece and Cyprus possibly and the Levant, which is the the eastern coast of the Mediterranean all had these relationships with each other. And we actually have some, some like, letters in, I'm not sure quite what language, but yeah, we have some letters that actually, like, speak to these guest friend relationships. And it is also, this guest friendship is actually brought up in the Iliad. There's this passage in book six of the Iliad that describes this, this ancestral guest friendship relationship that um, Diomedes' family and Glaucus's family have with each other. Diomedes and Glaucus are on opposite sides of the war. So Diomedes is Greek and Glaucus is Trojan, and they're about to, like, duel each other. <laughs> and so Diomedes says to Glaucus, well, then, you are a guest friend of mine from far back in our families. 
so they actually like decide not to fight each other because of this ancestral guest friend relationship they're like well we don't need to fight we can fight other people yeah there's lots of other people to fight and it would be kind of a violation of this custom i think i've talked a little bit about this before the the custom um the greek word is uh xenia Mm -hmm. and it's like a fairly major theme in the odyssey Mm. so it's it was definitely a big thing (laughs) culturally and yeah that it comes up in this book a little bit it's it's just like it all feels correct as a classicist reading it like she doesn't leave shit out or domesticate the details yes it's also worth noting too that she specifically says she uses archaeological materials. So Thetis's earrings described in the scene where we get the wedding of uh, Peleus and Thetis are actually in the British Museum. Um, I've seen them. I feel like I would recognize them if I saw them. <laughs> yeah, when I was reading the scene, that scene, I was like, I swear to God I've seen this piece of jewelry. <laughs> like, it sounded really familiar, so that makes sense. I, I didn't know that she was, in fact, thinking of that specific item, but that makes sense. Yeah, and she also used in order to describe like the topography and the botany of the land around Troy, she actually does use the topography of Hisarlik, which is sort of understood to be this the city of ancient Troy, the the quote-unquote historical Troy. Yes. There's some complexity in there, but it's sort of broadly accepted that this is a city that people might have recognized as Troy. Yeah, insofar as Troy existed at all. Yeah. That's where it was. If you want to hear more of that particular rant and on the historicity of the Iliad in general, go listen to our Troy Fall of a City episodes. Uh. (laughs) Unfortunately, you'll have to endure a suffering. Um, So the sort of last, like, reference to the classical material that I think I really want to talk about is Creusa. Creusa gets a whole chapter here. Um, She does immediately die because that is what happens in the source material. However, Creusa is the wife of Aeneas and so of course she appears very briefly in the Aeneid and she is done dirty. I have so (laughs) much rage about how she appears in the Aeneid. She appears in book two and she's begs Aeneas for them to leave, as 73 other different characters have done throughout the course of this, of of book two of the Aeneid. Literally, Hector appears, Hector is dead at this point, and he appears, and he's like, Aeneas, you need to leave. His mother comes down from the heavens, and is like, who is Aphrodite, by the way, and she's like, you need to leave, and it takes him so many different, like, ridiculous people, (laughs) like, dead and alive, and, like, gods, telling him to leave before he does. It's super annoying. But then he just forgets about Creusa. So they leave and Creusa's behind him because basically he has his little son in one hand and he has his father in the other hand. His father is really, really old at this point. And his his wife is walking behind him and he doesn't realize that she's gone until they get to this place where they were, I think, meeting some of their servants. And she's like, he's like, oh shit, my wife is gone didn't notice until now. Um, And then he goes back to look for her. And then her ghost appears to him. And she's like, oh, it's totally fine that I'm dead. You just need to go live your life in yes. And it's like, what, in what world would somebody who had just died be like, yeah, it's fine that you forgot about me and I died and you just need to go live the rest of your life. 
so much rage. Anyway, in Natalie Haynes' version, Crayusa gets a much better story. She still dies, but basically how it happens is, is Crayusa just wakes up in her house and realizes that the city is on fire and she can't find Aeneas and she can't find her son. And so she essentially assumes that Aeneas has, has gone to find uh, his father. And so she tries to leave the city. And I think I believe she like basically asphyxiates on smoke before she is able to leave the city, which is much less horrible than the story she is given in the Aeneid, which basically, you know, she is the perfect wife to Aeneas and is perfectly understanding and is thus not really a character at all. I truly hate all the ancient sources that are like, yes, she is the perfect wife and totally understanding and has no feelings about all of this fucking bullshit. Had none of these men who wrote this shit down ever spoken to a woman? Uh, yes, is the answer to that question. Never mind. I retract the question. None of them ever treated human beings like they were women like they were human beings. I mean, you know, that's a time-honored tradition to not treat women like they were human beings. So, big shocker, but I'm still going to be mad about it. Yeah, it makes me insane is the thing. Speaking of women who surely had feelings aside from being a dutiful wife, can we talk about Penelope? Oh man, I would love to talk about Penelope. Okay. So, I have two things to say about Penelope in this book. I have three things to say about Penelope in this book. The first one is, I would die for her. And Natalie Haynes does a great job with her character. Yes. The second things are, there's just, like, so much attention paid to Penelope's, like, emotions in this book. And one of my favorite things, and one of the ways that it is sort of portrayed that I I like the best, is... So as we've mentioned already, Penelope's chapters are epistolary. They are letters written from Penelope to her absent husband and presumably never sent or if sent, never received. But the the real tell, I think, of like how she's really feeling about shit, not just the contents of the letters, is her salutations at the ends of her letters, which change in every letter. I did not notice that. That is very cool. Yeah. So, like, the first one is your loving wife, Penelope. The second one is just your wife. And then there's one that's just Penelope. And then we get your wife slash widow. And the last one... So, the last one is not actually addressed to Odysseus. The last one is addressed to Athena. Yes, yes it is. And is signed, Your Devoted Penelope. Yeah, and that one is really more framed, even though it is kind of a letter, it's also framed as her prayer. Yeah. At one point she gets, like, distracted by a thought, and she's like, sorry, I'll get back to praying now. Yeah. (laughs) And I think it's just really telling of, like, her... I I might have missed one in there also. I can't remember how many Penelope chapters there are overall. There's either, like, I think there's five, maybe? Four or five? Anyways, they're all good. And... She really, like, goes through it as to her feelings about Odysseus and what she's been hearing about Odysseus. Um, There's kind of this idea that, like, the bard, who is kind of implicitly Homer because she talks about him being blind. Well, I think there are different. So I, I, my sense of this is that the bards mentioned by Penelope are actually not the poet that Calliope is singing to. No, no. I think that the, I think that the bard that Calliope is singing to is not 
the same as the bard that is singing to Penelope. Yeah, and because, I think there are, I think there are multiple bards that are singing to yeah. Penelope. I just know that there's at one point there's a reference to him being blind to a bard being blind, which is a reference to Homer, this yes. kind of idea that we have of like Homer as the blind bard. Yeah, that's Calliope. Oh, is that yeah, Calliope? It, okay. Yeah, that's the bard that So the person Calliope is singing to is referred to as a poet, whereas the people that Penelope hears about Odysseus from are described as bards, which I think is interesting. So there's a sense that the poet is a late is a much later person who is hearing and writing these stories as opposed to the bards who are singing about them in the present as they are happening. Yeah, it's the difference between a person who is like composing the tale as opposed to people who's I mean, Homeric era poetry was like on the spot oral composition, but it came from stories that everybody already knew and used a lot of stock kind of like poetic syntax, Mm -hmm. as it were. Um, We've talked about this a little bit before as well. Uh, We talked about it in the Hades Town episode a bit, formally and all that. So yeah, it does differentiate a little bit in that way, which is quite interesting. In any case, we digress. Penelope has been hearing about Odysseus and is aware that her husband has been fucking around on her and she makes the decision not to like have him find out (laughs) as the case may be because you know ultimately it's better for her to have her husband back who she has indeed missed um but one of the things that is raised at the very end of her final letter is and i quote and so athene the prayer i offer is this Thank you for bringing my husband home, if that is what you have done. If the man who sleeps upstairs in the bed he wants carved from an old olive tree is an imposter, I suppose I will find out soon enough. He knows the old stories of our marriage, of that I am certain, and Telemachus is devoted to him, which is fortunate. So perhaps it does not matter if he is the man who left, or a changed man, or even another man altogether. He fits in the space that Odysseus left." Which is like, ah, it's just such an interesting sentiment. And it's one that I saw explored in a piece of scholarship that I read during a course that I took on the Odyssey about a year ago that I unfortunately can no longer remember the title or the author of, though I'm sure I could find it again if any listeners are interested. But that sort of puts forward on the basis of another story about a man I believe in one of the world wars, maybe like, I think this was actually a historical thing that happened. A man who took his comrade's place at his request when he was like, his comrade was dying and like said, or at some point when they were together, he said like, Hey, I'm going to tell you all of the stories of like my marriage that I've never told anybody else because we look a lot alike. And so if I die, can you go home and like, be the husband to my wife and, like, take up my identity, essentially. It might have been a fictional thing. I don't know. I feel like it was kind of French. Something like that. (laughs) In any case, whether it was fictional or historical, um, this, like, more modern thing, it presents this interesting possibility that, like, the only reason that we know that Odysseus is Odysseus is because the poet tells us that. Like, Penelope has no assurance that this man who has returned to her is the man who left. Particularly since it's obviously, you know, it's been 20 years, they've both changed, and he's been through a war. He probably has all kinds of PTSD, so, like, he's going to be a different person 
in some pretty fundamental ways than when he left. But, like, does it matter to her at all? Yeah. Like, she has a husband back to defend her from these pressing suitors who would kind of destroy her household, probably. And he seems enough like the man that she loves to be suitable. Mm -hmm. And he seems interested in being a a good father to her son. Yeah, and what I think is, is, uh, just to sort of jump into something a little bit else about Penelope, is that it is evident that she loves Odysseus. There's, you get the duality of the emotion where she hates him and loves him at the same time because she, there's, and this does come up, I believe, in the Odyssey, although you know it better than me, so correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea that Penelope and Odysseus are a match like, Penelope is described as being very, very intelligent in the same sort of way that Odysseus is, and that's why they, like, share this love for one another in a, in a lot of ways. I'm maybe gonna be wrong about this, but I believe the word described, the word used is, like, symphrosune, like, similar in mind, essentially, mm. that they are like-minded. Interesting. And yes, that it is much as made, particularly in the final books of the Odyssey where Odysseus and Penelope reunite that of of the idea that she is in fact as clever as him. Yeah. And that she is suited to him and that he is suited to her, that they are an extremely well-made match. And that that is one of the reasons why she has been, because no other man is going to be to her what he was to her. Yeah. We get that in the novel as well. She thinks about it. Like, she she talks a little bit about, in one of her letters, one of the other, one of the suitors, who she was like, look, he was young and handsome and seemed kind. He never abused any beggars or did anything else bad. And he was gentle with me. And if I was confident that you were dead, like, that probably wouldn't have been so bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Honestly, even if I wasn't confident that you were dead, that probably wouldn't be so bad. Which is like, yeah, I, I really like that this book acknowledges that women can have sexual desire for men. We get the oh, same yeah. thing. We get the same thing in the Clytemnestra chapter when she meets I guess this and mm-hmm. is like, fuck it, I'm a woman in my probably 30s or 40s and he's young and hot and interested in me. Yeah. Mm-hmm gonna Um, gonna hit that (laughs) like political schemes aside these are women who are interested in sex with men and there are all of these young hot men kicking around yes yeah and i think it's also i think what is frustrating about the odyssey um is that i don't think really penelope like penelope is described as this very intelligent woman and yet she shows no signs of frustration with her husband i don't think really a lot she shows a lot of signs of grief. Yeah. And when he does return, she shows signs of skepticism. Mm. It's very easy to read, particularly the bed, the test of the bed, as her ha- suspecting that it might be Odysseus, but wanting to verify that he is who he says he is before she actually like allows him into her bed and into her home fully. Because she doesn't trust that easily yeah but i think the the thing is is that it's but she's not mad yeah she's not she's not angry and she should be angry 
<laughs> right? Like everybody else at this point has been able to come home from the Trojan War and it takes him 10 whole ass years. Yeah. And of course, you know, in the in the Odyssey, there isn't this thing where she, she has some sort of sense of what's going on with him. But like, there should be some sense of anger and frustration there. Um, and there isn't really. But women being angry is threatening. Yes, it is. Yep. Mm-hmm. The only women that I can think of that get angry about men exercising their right to do whatever the fuck they want are figures like Clytemnestra and Medea. Yeah, figures who are very violent. Who are extremely, who are violent and vilified. Yes. But yeah, there's this beautiful line that Natalie Haynes has that says, of Penelope speaking, saying, you were wedded to fame more than you were ever wedded to me, which is sort of her frustration about how Odysseus is going on all these exploits instead of prioritizing coming home to her. And it's really this, like, resignation that she she loves this man and she knows that, like, this is her person, but that he is going to do all of these things that cause her a lot of pain. Because, unfortunately, he is just like that. Yep. Like, she knows it about him and is resigned to it because she's not surprised. She, you know, fell in love with him knowing that he is a flawed person. Yeah. May I say, finally some good fucking Odysseus. Like, does he suck? Yes. Is he interesting? Yes. Do we get, like, this interesting perspective that's like, yeah, you fucking suck, but I'm in love with you anyways? Like, that's just, it's just a really refreshing take on the character, I think. I, I w- would like briefly to compare to a book that we, I think, have both read but have not talked about on the podcast yet, which is Madeline Miller's Circe. Yes. Which has a similarly complex take on Odysseus's character that I enjoyed very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sing to me, muse of a polluter pos man like he's very he's very complicated he's very weird um shout out to emily wilson's translation of polluter pos as complicated because mm. like she's right and should say it so i feel like this is really really exemplifies what is so beautiful about this book is the emotional complexity it brings to all of the characters and how you can be happy and sad and angry and frustrated and how these women can be like shitty and complicated and not just tragic figures. Um, And so she says in her afterword, survivors, victims, perpetrators, these roles are not always separate. People can be wounded and wounding at the same time or at different times in the same life. Perhaps Hecabe, um, which is the actual Greek for Hecuba, is the most brutal example of that. Um, And yeah, that really sums up what I loved so much about this book. So another note on the sort of emotional arc of this book. One of the things that we mentioned briefly at the beginning of this recording was that this book is not depressing, really, given how full of depressing shit it is. Yes. And I think it's because... Natalie Haynes manages to give all of these women either a death before they end up in true fucking horrible misery and suffering or a mitigating factor of some kind or they kind of get away. Yeah. Which is like kind of, but none of that with erasing that these are women who are going to be raped and murdered and sacrificed for other people's crimes and 
treated like garbage or animals for no reason other than where they were born. And it's very hard to strike that balance, but I think she does a startlingly good job of it. And I want to pull out a specific passage that I think exemplifies how well this is done. This is from, I believe, the first Trojan Women chapter, quite early in the book. Chapter three, this is page 34, right before the Theano chapter, actually. And we get a little passage talking about Cassandra, which... May I just say, finally some good fucking Cassandra also. Yes. I have bitched endlessly about Cassandra in like everything that she has shown up in that we've talked about because she gets done dirty so often, but this book does her really well. I love Cassandra so much. I I am a simp for Cassandra. (laughs) Page 34. Polyxena issued a low guttural cry which merged with the chatter of the cormorants and went unheard by their captors. No matter how hard she tried to suppress her grief, she could not help herself. Could this have been avoided? She asked her mother. Did Troy have to fall? Was there no point when we could have been saved? Cassandra's shoulders quivered with the effort of not screaming. She shook with the force of her desire to shout that she had told them a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand times, and that none of them had listened, not once, not for a heartbeat. They didn't hear, they couldn't see, and yet she could see nothing but the future all the time, forever. Well, not forever. She could see her own future as clearly as she saw everything else. Its brevity was her one consolation." fuck shivers still mm-hmm. the first time i read that i was like oh fuck yeah and we get another passage from her later in in i believe in her chapter mm. later on where she talks about how kind of one of the few consolations of her gift being what it is is that although she has to endure all kinds of violence and suffering she isn't surprised by any of it like she talks in fairly explicit detail about her rape by lesser Ajax and how although she still has to endure the physical pain of being beaten and raped violently by this man she isn't shocked when taking refuge in the temple of Athena doesn't help her there's no surprise when she's dragged away from the altar and she also has the consolation of seeing and knowing that she's going to be avenged by the goddess yeah Which is not something that, you know, these... So even though she has to endure all of this pain, like, it's fine. In a way. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't mitigate the suffering that she has to go through, but there's this sort of balancing thing that prevents it from being... That prevents it from turning into torture porn. Yes. And I think also, too, another thing that contributes to this is that the Trojan women chapters are interspersed with chapters that are, like, less depressing often. Because the Trojan women chapters are pretty brutal. Yeah. (laughs) They're, yeah, they're, the Trojan women are, like, probably the point in this book where the women women are experiencing, like, the most awful suffering because they've just all been enslaved. Hecabe finds out that her last surviving son... Aside from Hellenus. Aside from Hellenus, which she doesn't know about, um, has been brutally killed um andromache's uh, baby gets killed like it's and yeah polyxana gets sacrificed yeah they they all get given to like these awful men like yeah. neoptolemus and agamemnon it's it's really rough 
But, like, Haynes manages to prevent it from being just miserable. And I'm going to compare again to The Silence of the Girls here, which is a book that fails to do that. Yeah. Because it is a book about suffering in a lot of ways. Like, The Silence of the Girls is specifically Briseis's point of view, and I have issues with it. I We can maybe do an episode on it in the future. I think it's worth reading, and I am willing to read it again, because I am the, of the opinion that The Silence of the Girls is an important book and, like, worth having read, but I did not enjoy it at all. Yeah. Yeah. This book, on the other hand, I also think is an important book, and I think it does a lot of stuff that's, like, really good and useful and kind of, I don't know, it just, like, treats the women well, which is always nice, but, like, it was also pleasant to read. Yes. Well, I mean, the prose is beautiful. Like, yes. we've, you know, read a bunch out from this book in in this podcast episode, like, more so than I think we've read any quotes out. I mean, it's just because all the prose is beautiful. And it has this really unique quality that I don't know if I've really ever read a book that accomplishes this as well as this book does, but the prose is very beautiful and literary, but it's also not difficult to read. Like, this was a breeze to read. It was really straightforward. And I, yeah, I don't know how she managed that, but you can definitely tell that she is a, you know, somebody who's done a lot of writing. You can tell that she's published three novels already. Yeah, and you can tell that she also writes to talk to people. Mm. Rather than just writing text. Yes, that that's a really good point. So... I have two more things to talk about, and both of them are kind of gripes. One of them is a slightly, one of them is a fairly petty gripe, and one of them is a not so petty gripe, although still fairly minor. Okay, well, pop off. So, okay, so here's my really petty gripe. On the one hand, I really enjoyed this passage, and it's like kind of a fun, like, it's a fun interpretation in some ways. But in other ways, it makes me grumpy, which is she she just decides that that Athena is horny for Odysseus. And I am like an ace Athena stan. So it makes me grumpy that she decided that Athena was horny for anybody. Um, I like this because it makes Athena even pettier. And I, I like petty Athena. Fair enough. Like I said, this is a very this is a very like grumpy uh, this is a very, like, minor gripe. Well, this is about your own personal headcanon. Yes. <laughs> Not yeah. about the source it's material. It's just a conflict between... But I thought it was worth bringing up because it's also it's also under that subheading of, like, interesting interpretive choices that Haynes makes mm. that, like, whether or not you agree with them, I think there's some merit and they're very interesting. Like, just because I personally was like, really? Do we have to? Like, about that doesn't mean that it's without merit as an interpretation or that it's not interesting and like that somebody out there I'm sure would really enjoy this interpretation and and the idea that she like kind of has this like a little bit of a longing to like have a connection to that aspect of of sort of femininity in a way that she simply does not because that's not the kind of goddess that she is I don't know, like, this this whole passage, it's on pages 142 to 143, and she talks about how she really is, like, feeling antagonistic towards Aphrodite for, and, and sort of towards weddings in general, but, like, 
Aphrodite being there and what she represents in particular of this sort of paragon of beautiful, desirable womanhood, which is something that Athena will never have and can't really access except for like this one little glimmer of desire for Odysseus that she has, but sort of dismisses because she's making the conscious choice to like not be that way, but that doesn't erase it. I don't know. I Maybe it just made me angry because like, poked me directly in my own gender feelings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, I don't know. I now that I'm talking about it, I'm realizing that maybe that's what it was, but it was still like something that I was like, "Oh fuck." What? It made me go, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> so, if like me, you are kind of a stan for like a fairly asexual Athena who is not interested in men, maybe this would also make you a little grumpy. Yeah, I think it's interesting because this is one bit where you might be able to say, oh, this is kind of a modern interpretation. However, the patriarchy has been pitting women against each other for centuries, and it would not surprise me if we do have places in Greek and Roman sources where we see this specific feeling, which, you know, might feel very modern, of not being able to live up to this paragon of womanhood that is set up for you. It is definitely drawing on the judgment of Paris, like, you know, each one of them wants to be the fairest and that like competition between women. So that does really indicate that there, you know, that has been a a sense that has been a, around for a long time and is kind of a thing that I think we can just assume exists in patriarchal societies that have this structure of pitting women against each other. Yeah. And that feeling of being resentful of somebody who is like better at performing womanhood than you is like a mood and valid. Yes. Athena, you're valid is what I'm saying. <laughs> okay, here is my here is my more serious gripe. I only have one more serious gripe. So the book presents this idea in a couple of chapters, specifically in the the Themis chapter and then in the Gaia chapter that the Trojan war and and we get a hint of it in the Eris chapter as well. Mm. That the Trojan war happens because Gaia makes a plea to Zeus to reduce the human population and Themis helps him come up with the plan to cause a giant war and then she Themis makes the apple which Eris finds and then gives and I don't mind that sequence of events of this series of goddesses being kind of behind the whole events of the war in a way that is like that, like, there are women involved in a way that's kind of invisible because men take credit for shit all the time. What bothers me, and this is, like, very ideological, is the Gaia chapter in particular bringing out this idea of, like, the burden of humanity on the earth is too much and the obvious solution to environmental harm is to kill a bunch of people. Yes, that also bothered me. I'm glad you brought that up because I forgot that bothered me, but that bothered me as well. Um, also, my roommates hate this. Hates this every time I mention something like this. She's like, "That's an eco-fascist talking point," and she's right. Exactly, it is an eco-fascist talking point. I, I mean, I guess I'll just say that, like, yeah, this is something that was kicking around on social media quite a lot in the last year because there was a bunch of like, especially during the height of like quarantine and lockdown in 
in highly populated parts of the world. There were a lot of photos of, like, you know, the deserted streets and, and also of, like, parks and shit like that and people being, like, whatever, hashtag nature is healing, we are the virus, that oh. kind of shit. And so it stirred the... It, like, stirred the eco-fascist pot. But it ignores... Like, that kind of rhetoric, unfortunately very much ignores and and like I understand why well-meaning people would have these ideas that like humanity is a burden on the earth because the truth of the matter is our lifestyles are a burden on the earth Mm -hmm. particularly the wealthy sort of quote-unquote western nations we do a lot of harm to the environment but it's not because of overpopulation and particularly those kind of like COVID adjacent talking points that the way that was coming up at the time, it ignores the fact that a vast majority of the people who were dying were, you know, old people and disabled people and people of color and other people who have proportionately less access to medical care because of societal disadvantage and societal discrimination on a systematic level that prevented them from like having the access having that access and therefore being able to survive and so being like oh well it's good that a bunch of people are dying it's like well look at who's dying yeah and it's also like the people because of that the people who were were more likely to um die from covid are not the people who are using up all the resources yes Um, and this also does play into racism and white supremacy quite directly because and I don't think a lot of people who like invoke this realize this but it's like oh the you know the African women with the seven children or whatever like they're killing the planet but it's like one say family in Africa uses significantly fewer resources than I myself use again the problem is not overpopulation and also like the way that like wealth and birth rates and population works out we're kind of going to hit a population ceiling at a certain point. The more sort of resources people have access to, the the less children they tend to have. So as soon as people are, like, wealthy enough, they stop having children, as soon essentially. As, as soon as people are wealthy enough that, like, they don't need a million children to help work their land and do other tasks, and also they don't need to have a bunch of children because 40 to 60% of them are going to die before age 10. Um, but And also because they have access to birth control. <laughs> and because they have access to birth control and a whole million billion other factors. Rich people have fewer children, so if we made the whole world rich, we wouldn't have an overpopulation issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we don't have an overpopulation <laughs> issue in the first place. Yes. So. Take that, eco-fascists. But yeah, so, and I mean, to come back to the Trojan War and the idea of Framing the Trojan War as, like, a Thanos-style we-must-reduce-the-surplus-population-to-save-the-world kind of thing. It's not great because although this particular book is extremely sympathetic to the Trojans in general and in the Greek imagination at the time, the Trojans were, by and large, though not without individual exceptions, a heavily racialized other, and were the target and the emblem of a lot of Greek xenophobia. And the the idea of, like, the Greeks, who are two white supremacists, the core 
and the heart and soul of like the birth of Western civilization, TM, going out and killing and and obliterating, mm-hmm. like committing a genocide against this other civilization and them being the victors in what is a a war of extermination that is motivated by a desire to save the planet from environmental destruction like that's not a great thing to be having it's oops you did an eco-fascism without really meaning to which is pretty clear Well, do you have anything else that you want to cover before we finish here um, and do kind of final thoughts? Um, Well, I have like one interesting thing to say about um, the framing device of Calliope talking to this poet, which is that it actually resembles and I think is probably drawing on Ursula K. Le Guin's Lavinia, um, which is so in Lavinia, essentially what happens is so Lavinia is Aeneas's future wife and their their descendants essentially like found the Roman like Romans quote-unquote civilization as it is sort of portrayed in the Aeneid and so in the book Lavinia by Ursula K. Le Guin which is another sort of like telling you know a woman's story from her perspective Lavinia actually like has a relationship with Virgil and so she dreams of Virgil and has this back and forth with the poet. Interesting. Yeah. So I think that there's, you know, that that might be something she's drawing on a little bit. I can't imagine that she hasn't read Lavinia just because of, you know, the way this book is written. Like, that would be a sort of thing you would probably want to read. Interesting. If yeah. If you want to write a thousand ships. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting piece of intertextuality. Yeah. Um, yeah. At... Natalie Haynes, if you ever listen to this podcast. First of all, we apologize for calling you out a little bit, but also, did you read Lavinia? Was that an inspiration? We're curious. Yeah, like, she really... The framing mechanism's really effective, too. Yes. I I just, like, I really like it. Yeah. I'm, on, I'm not always sold on framing mechanisms. They don't always work for me, but in general, I I like framing mechanisms a lot as a concept. They just have to be well executed, and I think that she does execute it really well. Oh, she execute she executes in a way that doesn't feel forced and feels super satisfying because we very only occasionally get Calliope's sort of interjections. Yeah, I and think she there's... also is like the start and the end of the book and it just feels like a a beautiful like circularity like it's, it's like ah this all came back together at the end and again in a way that doesn't feel forced yeah on the one hand i really want to read the final line of the novel because it really slaps but on the other hand i think that people should read this book and it hits yes so go forth and read a thousand ships by natalie haynes Yes, and I will say, as somebody who, yeah, doesn't necessarily normally like books that deal with quote-unquote depressing material, like, I really enjoyed reading this book. I think if you are going to read any sort of thing this like, genre of, like, adult novels that talk about classical material, even, like, the smaller sort of subgenre of adult novels that focus on women's experiences, read this one. This is the best one. <laughs> yeah, as far as not being just, like, a bad time to read. This is definitely quite far up there as far as like classical novels that I've read. 
admittedly, I haven't read that many, but I've read a few and they're often quite grim. Yeah. And not even just that they're grim, but like that this is just very, very well written. This yeah. is a very easy read. Um, it's an easy read, but it's also a beautiful read and it will make you think a lot. So go forth and, and read A Thousand Chips. listening to Classically Trained. This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Marlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations, and on the ancestral land of the Ho-Chunk Nation. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website, classicallytrainedpod.podbean.com, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com, contacted via Twitter at classicallypod, or you can leave a review. Finally, some acknowledgements. We'd first like to thank Nicholas Judy and Dark Fantasy Studio, who produced our wonderful music. We would also like to thank the Society for Classical Studies for their help in supporting this podcast. As always, be well, and do not, under any circumstances, do as the Romans did. Romans did.